This morning we are going to be looking at a message entitled, Loving God, Fighting Idols. Loving God, Fighting Idols. And we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32 as we resume our sermon series, God's Story, Our Story. If you're new to tuning in on a Sunday morning, we started a sermon series back in the fall, starting all the way in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, as we seek to see every week that all of the stories of Scripture, all of the characters, all of the themes, all of the stories point to one grand story from beginning to end, and that your story will never make sense until we understand God's grand story in the scriptures. This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 looking at select verses in this chapter. It's the story of God's people worshiping an idol, the idol of the golden calf. Now remember that God's people are in between Egypt, which they've been enslaved for 400 years, and the promised land. They find themselves in the wilderness In chapter 32, Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God and God is delivering to Moses the Ten Commandments. He's giving, God is giving Moses the law that if these are going to be my people and I'm going to be their God, then these people have to understand that their lives have to be set apart, that my people are distinct and my people are holy. And God will use his law in which he distinguishes his people. Well, the rest of the people of God are under the care of Moses's brother Aaron at the base of the mountain. And they're waiting and they are growing restless They want to get on with it. They want to get on to the promised land. And they are tired of waiting for Moses and God on the top of the mountain. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool made of a golden calf and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early, and the next day offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshiped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. Skip down to verse 13. Remember, this is Moses speaking. 
Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster they had spoken of bringing to his people. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp, this is Moses, and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand, broke them at the foot of the mountain, and then he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. And Moses said to Aaron, his brother, what did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? And on this Lord's day, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord It stands forever. Amen. Two weeks ago, I heard a leader in our community say that this pandemic is exposing our idols. And this is what he meant by that. That in moments of stress, in moments of anxiety and fear, in these seasons, it tends to bring out the worst in us. These idols that we tend to normally hide, the, the fears that we tend to be able to control. In moments like this, in this pandemic, for instance, it is exposing our weaknesses. It's exposing our anxieties and even exposing our idols. We might ask yourself, what exactly is an idol? How would you actually define idolatry? Well, an idol is anything you've given your heart to over and against God. Anything you're trusting in besides God. Anything you've put your hope in that is smaller than God, then that is an idol. And it's typically in these seasons of stress and anxiety and fear that we tend to run to these idols, these things of this world, other than running to God himself. You see, it's no different for us than it is for the people of God here in Exodus chapter 32. It was in this moment of uncertainty as they were waiting for God and Moses at the base of the mountain, as their future was uncertain, it says that they went to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and said, enough of putting our hope in Moses and putting our hope in God. Instead, we want to run to our idols. We want to run to the things of this world. You see, Exodus chapter 32 is a snapshot of God's continuous frustration with his people, continually having to wrestle them away from the things of this world and from the idols of this world and continually calling them back unto himself returning his people to ultimately their first love. So what can we learn about the people of God and what ultimately this morning can we learn about ourselves in this time of uncertainty and fear about what we are prone to run to in these moments of doubt 
and anxiety. The first thing that we can learn about God's people and about ourselves here in Exodus chapter 32 is that God's people need to be honest about their idols. You see, we can't keep ourselves from idols if we first can't be honest about our ability and our potential to run to idols. You see, the reality is we all struggle with idol worship at some level. The people of God did it here in Exodus chapter 32, and you yourself this morning in this season of fear and doubt might find yourself running to the idols of this world for hope. But God's people need to be honest about them because when we're not honest about our idols, it can potentially lead to utter catastrophe and disaster as we see it almost led to the people of God leading them to utter catastrophe and disaster here. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 32, the people of God are growing impatient and it's in their impatience and it's in their doubt and it's in their moment of fear, not knowing when Moses was ever gonna come down from that mountain, not knowing what tomorrow would, would bring that it brought out the worst in them. And look at, some of the, look at some of the things that they said to Aaron. They said, yeah, this Moses, listen how degrading they were to Moses. I mean, they are so unaware of their heart's ability to worship things smaller than God. I mean, they treat Moses as if he's this one that can just easily be brushed aside. They even say it, yeah, this Moses that brought us out of the land of Egypt. I I mean, think about what they're saying. Yeah, this Moses who brought us out of the land of bondage uh, after 400 years. Yeah, this this Moses, we're gonna easily cast him aside. And they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods. And what does Aaron do? He buckles under pressure and he builds for them out of the gold that they had received from Egypt, a golden calf. Now, what's the deal with a golden calf? I mean, this seems so primitive, right? This seems so peculiar. In your moment of fear, your moment of doubt, they ask him to to make a god and, and Aaron, the best he can come up with is a golden calf. Well, the golden calf had great significance for these people. Back in Egypt, it was the calf that was the, the cow that they worshipped, that they believed in, in idol worship even back in Egypt. And so they were very prone to give in to the idols of this world. And so what the golden calf represents for the people of God, it represented something that was familiar. It represented something they could control. You see, what the people of God were ultimately saying is, we don't want a golden calf, but we want something that we can control. We want something that we can carry. And when they say this, listen to these words, we want you to make us gods. They are ultimately saying, we don't want a God who has created us in his image We want a God that we've created in our image. You see, beneath the surface of the golden calf, the people of God were saying, we want to control our own destiny. We want a God that we can manufacture. We want a God that we can control. And we want a God that we can pick up and carry. We are not content with this God on top of the mountain dictating our future anymore. We want to take matters into our own hands. And that is what the... That is what the golden calf represented for the people of God. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we want a golden calf as well. 
There are many times in our own lives that we are not content with God's plan for our life. We're not content with God's plan for our future. Sometimes we grow impatient, waiting on the will and of the plan of God. And we say, no, we want to take matters into our own hands because we don't like how our life is working out. And instead of a golden calf, we manufacture gods in our own image and we give in to the idols of this world. And so for you this morning, your idol might be materialism. Your idol might be performance. Your idol might be physical beauty. Your idol might be power or money or your career or maybe even your children. Something that you can control something that you can manufacture, something that you can pick up and carry because you're tired of God picking you up and carrying you. You instead want to take matters into your own hands because you say this morning, God's not meeting my expectations. And so just like the people of God in Exodus chapter 32, we are no different. And I want to ask you this morning, can you be honest? The people of God need to be honest about their idols John Calvin said that our hearts are an idol-making factory. The people of God need to be honest about the idols that they give into. And in this moment of fear and in this moment of doubt and uncertainty, what are you choosing to put your hope in that is smaller than God that will quickly reveal to yourself this morning your idol and the things that you are putting your hope and trust in that are smaller smaller? Than Jesus. The people of God need to be honest about where we are prone to wander and honest about our capacity to leave the God we love. But the second thing that we learn here in Exodus chapter 32 about ourselves and the people of God is that once the people of God identify and are honest about their idols, they then need to resist them. The people of God, it's not enough just to identify our idols and be aware of them. We need to resist them. This is what we call repentance. It's what we call turning away from the idols of this world. And to resist our idols, to resist the idols of this world that we are putting our trust and hope in that are smaller than God, it requires an aggressive pushback. Look what happens to Moses. After God says, you better go down and talk to my people. Look what Moses does in verses 19 through 20. Moses comes down off the mountain of Mount Sinai and he goes into the camp. And what does Moses do? Does he pacify the people? Does he make excuses for them? Does he, does he kind of uh, sugarcoat the situation and, and smooth it over and say, I understand and I have sympathy with you people that uh, in your moment of doubt and in your moment of fear, I understand why, why you would have given into the temptations of this world and, and, and fail to trust God and, and fail to trust his plan for your life. No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He moves in and in verse 19, it says he was anger and he burned hot with anger and then what did he do in verse 20 he took their idol and he smashed it to pieces I would not have wanted been in Moses's way that day this is a man literally on a mission from God but you see in order to resist our idols it requires an aggressive pushback like we see here with Moses he takes their idol and he literally smashes it And then he goes a step further. He takes the smashed pieces of their idol, mixes it with water, and he makes them drink it. 
I mean, this is not a man that is messing around here in the camp of the people of God. But you see, in order to repent and turn away from our idols, in order to resist those things of the world that are taking the place of God in our life, the things that we are hoping in that are smaller than God, it requires this aggressive pushback. That we are not making excuses, we don't pacify or we smooth over uh, the reality of our idol worship, but we smash it to pieces. But it also might require worthy leadership. It might require a leader like Moses who's able to confront the idols of our heart and of our lives. And who are these leaders in our lives that are confronting us, that are able to speak truth to us like Moses? You see, at one moment, the people of God didn't have a worthy leader in Aaron. He buckled under pressure and he gave in to their idol worship. But then at the end, they are provided a worthy leader in the person of Moses, a man who is able to speak truth, able to confront them in their idol worship. So who is your, your leader? We need leaders who are able to speak truth in our churches. We need leaders who are able to speak truth into our businesses and in our community. But you know where we need leaders more than ever before? We need leaders in our homes. Now, let me say something very clear, and I might step on a few toes this morning. It grieves me the amount of Christian parents I see that put such a high emphasis on their children succeeding athletically and their children succeeding academically, but put little to no effort at all into their children growing in an active relationship with Jesus Christ. And parents, can I speak directly to you this morning? What an opportunity we have as the world has shut down and our children are in our homes more than they've ever been in our homes before. What an opportunity as parents we have to say, no more will this family and this home give in to the idols of this world. No more We as a family are going to turn away from the idols and the things of this world, the things that we have put our hope and trust in, and we as a family are going to turn to our first love, which is Jesus Christ. We need parents who are willing to take a stand and to be a worthy leader like Moses and smash the idols of our home and of our family and of our children's lives and say, no longer will we give in to this world, but we will return to our God and return to our first love. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to be honest about the idols in our lives? And how are we going to turn and repent? Well, lastly, the reality is that God's people need to be captured by a greater love. You see, the people of God were tempted to think in Exodus 32 that they could find their hope in something that they could control, but to no avail. But it was this story of great love that God had for his people that ultimately captured their heart yet again. And the story of God's great love is the only thing we'll capture our hearts again this morning. You see, in one moment, we're told in verses 7 through 10, that God's anger is burning against his people. He says that he is going to rain down judgment and wrath upon the people of God here in Sinai. 
But then what happens? In verses 11 through 14, Moses begins to plead with God, and God relents. The question is, did God change his mind? I thought this God, when he says he's going to do something, he just does it. Is God changing his mind here? He says he's going to rain down judgment on Sinai. And then, then in an instant, it says the Lord relents. Well, what exactly did Moses do? In verses 13 and 14, Moses appeals to a promise In verse 13, he says, you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who are those men? They're the forefathers of the people of God. And what Moses pleads is this, you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would send one, the son of the promise, a child of the promise, in which he would take away the sins of the world. You see, what happens that day on Sinai is God does not change his mind, but it's Moses who appeals to God and said, God, you promised that you would not cast down judgment on Sinai, but you would cast down judgment on the one who is to come. You see, this is the great story of the love of God. God does not cast down wrath and judgment on Sinai, but it would be centuries later that God would cast down his judgment and his wrath upon Calvary. You see, God does not change his mind, but instead he just casts down judgment upon his own son. And it is the only thing that would once again capture the hearts of the Israelites. And it is the only thing this morning that will capture your heart and turn you away from the idols of this world, to turn you away from the things that you are trusting in and hoping in smaller than Jesus, and turning once again to your first love. And I want to ask you this morning, if your heart has been prone to wander in this season, and your heart has been prone to trust in things smaller than Jesus, would you be captured yet again by this incredible love story? That you as an idolatrous people, are deserving of the wrath and judgment of God. But then in an instant, we're reminded that that wrath and that judgment fell upon the very Son of God in your place. There is nothing that will capture your heart like this love story. The story of Jesus on the cross taking your judgment and your wrath for you. Would you be captured yet again by the story of stories? There was a girl by the name of Anne, and Anne struggled her entire life with her image, with the way she looked, with her physical beauty. And she she never thought that she was good enough. She never thought that she was pretty enough. She never thought she was beautiful. But then Anne was led to, to profess Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and she enters into a relationship with Jesus and and the thing that saved her life was the reality that God looks upon her as he looks upon Jesus. And the day she discovered that she is beautiful in the eyes of God because of what Jesus had done for her, she said it changed her life forever. And when she became a Christian, she drew on her hands a cross. 
So that every time she looked down upon her hands, she would be reminded that I am God's beloved. Every time she would look down on her hands, she would say, I belong to him. Every time she would look down, she'd be reminded that he loves me and I'm his forever. But you want to know something even better than that? The Bible tells us that when Jesus looks down, on his hands are written our names. When Jesus looks down on his hands, he sees the names of his beloved so that Jesus is always reminded that these people are mine and that no one, no one can take them from me. Here is the truth and the promise for all those that have placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, that you can be captured by the one who has first captured you, that your heart this morning can be captured by the Savior of sinners who first on the cross was captured by you forever. Would you be captured by this Jesus Would you put your faith and hope and trust in him, maybe even for the first time? Because here is the hope for all who believe that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, God did amazing things through his people. God did amazing things through his people, through Exodus and the rest of the story of redemptive history. But God could only do something amazing through his people once they repented and turned away from their idols and turned back to him as their true source of hope. I've heard a lot of leaders the last four weeks talk about revival. Oh God, would you bring about revival because of this pandemic? And let me make it very clear, this virus will not bring about revival. This virus in and of itself does not have the power to move revival in our land. It has always been and only been when the people of God repent of their idols and return to God, then and only then can revival happen. So if we are serious about revival happening, it will begin with the people of God identifying their idols and turning away from things that they have put their hope and trust in that are smaller than Jesus and returning to their first love. So if we want revival and we're serious about revival, it begins with you and it begins with me. Oh Lord, would you revive us and would you turn us away from things that are smaller than Jesus? Revival can't come without repentance. It comes with the very people of God. And may the story that comes out of this season not be COVID-19, but may it be a revival unlike we have ever seen in this generation. And what if your story, what if your story this season was that in the midst of a pandemic, I found Jesus and my family found Jesus and my life was never the same.